understanding of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Have you ever done anything really dumb? I mean, something you look back on and you say to yourself, how could I have been so foolish? I should have known better. What about something really smart? Have you ever made a decision that turned out to be really wise? The results were much better than you'd ever anticipated. When I think of poor decisions I have made, one that kind of floats to the surface of my consciousness is not selling Nortel stock when it started to drop. Now, some of you are too young to remember that fiasco, but Nortel was once the largest company in Canada. Over a quarter of the TSX was Nortel stock. Some of us remember that, and we feel more than a little twinge. My children still give me a hard time that I didn't sell that stock when it started to drop. I think they could see their inheritance going down the drain. Fortunately, not all of my decisions have been as foolish as that. Some of them have been very wise. When I think of the wise decisions that I've made, one of the ones that comes to the top is marrying my wife, Faith. And another wise decision was to tell you that today. <laughs> that should be worth some domestic points, don't you think? Sometimes we make such poor decisions that we're left wondering what we were thinking. How could we be so foolish? Other times we make decisions that result in a course of action that proves to be very wise indeed. We begin this morning a short series of sermons from a book in the scriptures that seeks to warn us against making foolish decisions and encourage us to make wise decisions. And that book, of course, is the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs belongs to a category of literature that's called wisdom literature. It gives guidance regarding what is wise. There's a lot of good advice concerning how to live in the book of Proverbs. It may not tell us when to sell a stock when it's starting to tank, but it does give us advice concerning finances. And it may not tell us whom we ought to marry, but it does give us a lot of advice about our marital relationships. Proverbs is a book that deals with many practical issues, the challenges that all of us face day by day. Here are principles that can guide us to lead full and fulfilling lives in our marital life, in our financial life, and in many other aspects of life. From this book, we gain insight 
into how to live a life that is satisfying and fulfilling. Throughout the book, we find contrast drawn between wisdom and foolishness. And we're constantly being reminded that as we move through life, we will face decisions that can be very foolish, temptations that can result in very poor consequences. But we also face many opportunities to make wise decisions, and those must be grasped when they appear before us. This is New Year's Day. It's a time of new beginnings. And so I thought it would be appropriate to begin this series on the book of Proverbs with what Proverbs itself says is the beginning of wisdom. And where does wisdom start? Well, according to the book of Proverbs, wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. That verse comes at the end of the introduction to the book of Proverbs that was read for us just a few moments ago. And it contains what might be described really as the motto of the book. This is the primary theme of the book of Proverbs. So it's a very good place to begin a series that looks at this book. What the writer is saying here is not simply that it is wise to fear the Lord, though that is certainly true, but he's saying that the search for wisdom, the efforts to gain knowledge, must begin with the fear of the Lord. Now, when he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, He's not saying you start with the fear of the Lord and then you move on to other things, things that are greater than the fear of the Lord. Not at all. Jim Neuheiser puts it this way, the fear of the Lord is not a beginning like the first stage of a rocket which is cast aside after it has served its purpose. Rather, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in the same way in which the foundation is the beginning of a house. Everything that comes after is built upon it. This is an extremely important principle. The fear of the Lord is at the very heart of true wisdom. This is where genuine knowledge begins. It would be fair to say, I think, that if you don't begin there, if you don't begin with a proper understanding of God, then you don't properly understand anything. Our knowledge of everything begins on that foundation of knowing who God is. This principle that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge is an extremely important one in the book of Proverbs. Its placement at the end of the introduction shows that to us. But the same principle is actually reiterated another nine times in the book of Proverbs. To cite but one example, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One 
is understanding. Proverbs is trying to make very clear that we get this point. It repeats it so frequently. But it's not unique to the book of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes is another example of a book that we classify as wisdom literature. A great deal of the book of Ecclesiastes presents what might be described as a rather cynical view of life. But when you come to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the author concludes with what is really important, what you really get to have to get a hold of. And in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, he says this, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Clearly, the biblical writers considered the fear of the Lord as something very important. They put a lot of emphasis on this concept. But the language of fearing the Lord might strike us as rather strange. Maybe old-fashioned language, archaic language. Maybe even language that doesn't seem to be consistent with our understanding of who God is and what God is like. God is not someone to be feared. Now, clearly, it's important that we understand what the biblical writers mean when they talk about the fear of the Lord. When we use the word fear, we often use it to describe a situation in which we're afraid of someone who's out to hurt us, or we're afraid of something bad that might happen to us. And clearly, that's not the kind of fear that the biblical authors have in mind here when they speak of the fear of the Lord. What did they intend then? What is their meaning? Well, some translators have opted for a translation that avoids the use of the word fear, presumably because that word can be misunderstood in the sense of of dread or terror. And so, for example, the Good News Bible translates the verse, you must first have reverence. For the Lord. Instead of fear, have reverence for the Lord. The New Living Translation is somewhat similar. It renders it start with God. The first step in learning is bowing down to God. Instead of speaking of the fear of God, it talks about bowing down to God. Now, these translations have the advantage of not leading to confusion over what kind of fear we're talking about here. But by avoiding the language of fear altogether, you can't help but wonder whether we're maybe losing something that the biblical authors had intended. Perhaps a little more satisfactory is the explanation that John Golden Gay gives in his commentary on Proverbs when he says, The fear of the Lord suggests reverence and awe which issue in obedience. Reverence and awe which issue in obedience. We may struggle a little bit with that 
language of fear. But one advantage that it has over the other translations that have been suggested is that it reminds us in a very powerful way of what we might call God's otherness. God's otherness. How God is different from us. It reminds us that we are not God's equals. He is far above us. And that language of fear suggests that he is one who has a majesty far beyond ourselves. And that we must therefore respond with appropriate awe and appropriate reverence and appropriate obedience. When I was in seminary, I had a professor who would often draw two circles on the chalkboard, a large circle and a smaller circle. And he used this to illustrate what he considered to be a very important point concerning a Christian view of reality. One of the distinctives of a Christian view of reality is what he called the creator-creature distinction. That there are two circles here. There's God and there's everything else. And the circle that represents God is the big one. And in comparison... We're the small circle, if you will. There's a great difference between the creator and all that he has created. He is infinite, but we are finite. You can't emphasize strongly enough how much greater God is than we are. One of the richest descriptions of the character of God that I've come across is one that was composed in the middle of the 17th century and is found in the Westminster Catechism. And here is what the Westminster Catechism says about who God is. God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite, in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. You could preach a whole series of sermons from that, couldn't you? It's such a full description of who God is, but the point I want to make is a very simple one. This is not a description of you or me. These descriptors cannot be applied to us. God is other than we are. And because God is so other than we are, when we come before him, we can only fall before him, if you will, in fear, in trembling, in recognition of his awesomeness and our finiteness. You may recall that the prophet Isaiah was granted a vision of God sitting on his throne in majestic glory. Isaiah chapter 6 
describes that vision and how it impacted the prophet. And here is what we read in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah was uniquely blessed to have this vision of God in all of his splendor and glory. But that vision gave him also a profound sense of his own finiteness, his own unworthiness to stand in the presence of such a one. And so we go on to read that Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It's a very close connection between seeing who God is in all of his glory and having a profound sense of our own sinfulness. Seeing who God is shows us how far short we fall of his perfection. For God is not only all-powerful and all-knowing, he's also holy and righteous and good. And in comparison, we're weak sinners. There is no sin, no evil in him. And so when we as flawed creatures come into his presence, we can only fall on our faces before him when we gain an appreciation for who God is, what God is like, we also learn something of how far short we fall of the kind of moral perfection that we see in him. But at the same time, we catch a glimpse of what we ought to be. The kind of holiness that God has ought also to be reflected in us. Earlier, I quoted John Golden Gay's explanation of what is meant by the fear of the Lord. Golden Gay says, the fear of the Lord suggests reverence and awe which issue in obedience. There's a link here between the fear of the Lord, understanding who God really is, and obeying him, doing his will, turning away from sin and serving him in obedience. That linkage between the fear of the Lord and obedience appears repeatedly in Scripture. Proverbs 8.13 says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 16.6 says, Through the fear of the Lord, evil is avoided. 
And again, this is not teaching that is unique to the book of Proverbs. If we go back to Deuteronomy and the very time when Israel was being set aside as a nation, Deuteronomy 10:12 says, Now Israel, what does the Lord God ask of you? This, to fear the Lord your God, to walk only in his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Here, fearing God is linked to walking in his ways, to being obedient to him, walking in the light of his directives, if you will. But what is particularly interesting about this text in Deuteronomy is that it's not only connected to walking in his ways, but the fear of the Lord is also linked to loving him. And that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because how many things or how many people can you say you both fear and love? But that can be said of God. We're to fear God, but also to love him. And that reminds us that fear here is not terror. Fear here is not dread. Fear here is not being afraid of God because God might try to hurt us, that God is somehow our enemy. But the God who is feared is also the God who is loved. As you know, many of the Proverbs that we find in this book are attributed to King Solomon, the son of King David. One of the best-known stories of King Solomon has to do with a dream that he experienced very early in his reign. And you may remember the story. God invited Solomon to ask for whatever he wanted, and it would be given to him. And Solomon responded by asking for wisdom. Not for fame or fortune, but for wisdom in order that he could govern the people of God aright. And God answered that prayer and rewarded him with wisdom. And Solomon became celebrated for his knowledge and his insight and his wisdom. But despite possessing all that wisdom, Solomon did not always act wisely. Have you ever noticed that sometimes really smart people do really dumb things? Sometimes you might catch a glimpse of a person like that when you look in the mirror in the morning. I do. Sometimes smart people do dumb things. Well, one of the more foolish things that this wise man Solomon did had to do with his marital life. First Kings 11, we read that King Solomon loved many foreign women, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Many. Part of the problem was the number of wives that Solomon had. But the bigger problem was who he married. And the fact that he chose wives from the very nations that God had told the Israelites they were not 
to intermarry with. And God had a very good reason for giving them that restriction. Namely, that if they married people who were pagan, they would be influenced towards idolatry. And that, of course, is exactly what happened to Solomon. We read of this in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Kings rather, 11, 4-6. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Solomon's example is a good reminder to us that we must not simply possess wisdom. We must not simply have knowledge. We must live wisely. As we confront the decisions that we each encounter each day, we must ask ourselves, what would God have me do? What is God's will in this situation? Genuine wisdom leads to obedience, for it recognizes that following God's design for our lives is what leads to true fulfillment and true satisfaction. And ignoring God's will for our lives leads to pain and heartache and sometimes to disaster. In our small group, we decided to do a series of studies for Advent by Pete Briscoe. In one of the videos, Pete describes an incident that took place when he was a young boy, about seven years old. He and a friend were playing in the backyard, and his dad came out and said, boys, I want you to make sure that you don't go over the fence at the back of the yard. Then his dad went inside. Well, you will not be surprised to learn that Pete and his friend immediately went to the fence at the back of the yard and did what they've been told not to do. They went over the fence. And as Pete describes it, as they sat on the other side, they suddenly heard a snort. And they turned around and saw what he describes as the biggest nastiest bull he had ever seen in his life. And so Pete describes how he set a new world record, running back to the fence and getting over it again. And there he met his dad on the other side, by the way. But Pete and his friend learned a very important lesson that day. And that is that his father had a very good reason for placing this restriction upon the boys, telling them what, that they should not go over the wall. And that's a lesson that all of us need to learn. God gives us lots of instructions. He gives us lots of guidance in his word. We're going to be looking at a lot of that in the weeks to come as we continue the series in the book of Proverbs. As we do so, we need to remember God doesn't give us these commands, this direction, this guidance because he's mean and he wants us to keep us from having fun. It's exactly the opposite. When God warns us against a wall, it's because he knows there's a bull on the other side. 
He knows the danger that violating those commands can lead to. We live in a world in which we face lots of temptations that promise enjoyment, that promise satisfaction, that promise happiness, but deliver misery. And God wants to save us from that misery. Today, we begin a new year. As we do so, let's remember that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And let's commit ourselves afresh to live wisely. Let's remember who God is, our maker and redeemer, the one who lives in unapproachable light, the one whom Isaiah saw in his great vision. And having caught a glimpse of the wonder and majesty and otherness of God, Let's get our priorities right by putting him front and center in our lives. And let's offer him the worship, the reverence, the love, the obedience, the service that he deserves. Let's start 2017 smart. God, that's, uh, that's exactly our heart. This is the first day of 2017, and we want to start it smart. God, as we go through the next 365 days, God, as we go through the next 365 years, whatever, I pray that we would just consistently seek to try not to fear you, to know you better, to come before you in, in awe and reverence so that we can better understand this world and who you are. And go, so God, as we come before you now, we just say, please take us. Please use us, all that we have. For your will and your glory. In your name. Amen.